Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. chapter here this evening and as I said before we we are not going to go into detail into each church uh, that's in chapters two and three I did a series on that it's been several years ago now probably every bit of five years ago I would say about the letters to the church but I'll try to maybe next week kind of do a survey of that and just kind of hit the tops of the trees if you want to hear in depth on that we still got that material and we can still make copies of that for you uh, if you're interested in that but that will help us just expedite just a little bit uh, through the book of Revelation Revelation chapter number 1 tonight going to begin with verse 1 just going to read 4 verses of scripture amen there this evening and then we will go uh, from there I will probably be jumping just a little bit around uh, in the, the, the first chapter of Revelation here tonight. But firstly, the first four verses, the Bible says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to shew unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Amen. Tonight, my title for this particular part of the book of Revelation is simply the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Can everybody say, God bless the teaching of his word. You may be seated in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek title for this same book that we call Revelation is Apocalypse. You have all heard perhaps the term Apocalypse. People have written books uh, named the Apocalypse. But it's taken from the first word in the Greek text. That is Apocalypses. And basically Revelation basically means this. This is real deep. But Revelation means to reveal or unveil or to uncover or to disclose. And the irony of that is this. Is that most people... Uh, will approach revelation as a mystery whenever God's really wanting to be a revelation. Amen. He's wanting uh, to reveal or disclose something to you and I. And we see through the book of Revelation and why largely I say that we are intimidated to a certain degree by it is a lot of the symbols that are used throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, he spoke to us there in the first verse that he sent it and signified, or if I can, signified. He sent it and signified. Uh, he, it's a symbolical book, uh, and it uses signs all throughout the book, and he sent it and signified it by his angel into his servant John. But again, God's intention was that it would reveal rather than conceal things and just make them more hidden. He wanted to reveal something to his people. If you will remember back to Daniel, I know everybody slept too many nights and that's long forgotten, uh, put back somewhere in the abyss of your mind. But in Daniel 12 and verse number four, in that closing chapter of Daniel, the Bible says, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and remember, seal the book even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. He uh, reaffirmed that in verse number nine that we have for you tonight. And he said, go thy well way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So we had Daniel, uh, this old, uh, notable Old Testament prophet. He was to seal up the book, not so much for the purpose again for hiding it, but for the purpose of preserving it until the time of the end because the things that he was writing about from Daniel's point of view was in the distant future. And so he sealed that up. But in the book of Revelation, years later, that is virtually now opened. What was sealed is now open. John 
was told in his writings of the book of Revelation in chapter 20 not to seal the writings that he wrote. Uh, all the penmanship that he had taken down of what he saw and he, what he witnessed. Daniel, seal it up for it's for the time of the end. And, but now, John, do not seal these writings because the Spirit of the Lord told him, the angel told him in verse number 3 here of Revelation chapter 1 that the time is at hand. Amen, it's at hand now, so keep all this unfolded and do not seal any of this up. So Revelation's purpose is revealed then in the first verse, the first verse of the, of the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Contrary to what may head the book of Revelation in your Bible, some of it may say the revelation of John. Well, no, it's really the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word of there, the revelation of, that word of there conveys something twofold. And that means it's the revelation that is from Jesus Christ and it is the revelation that is about Jesus Christ. It came from him and it is about him. All right, uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ is the dramatization, if you will, of Jesus Christ. The unfolding of who and what he is. The revelation, the revealing, the unveiling. Insomuch that in verse number 7, the Bible says, Every eye shall see him. Such a, a, an unfolding of the revelation of Jesus Christ that every eye shall see him. What they understood was this Jesus Christ to be more than just love that he's all times seen throughout the Gospels and New Testament Scripture, but the revelation shares another facet to him, and that is his attribute of judgment. Yes, love, but also here in Revelation, judgment. And so we see this unveiling of Jesus Christ because when you think about Jesus' first coming, whenever he came in Bethlehem as that babe that was in swaddling clothes, uh, the majority of his first coming was largely concealed. Uh, for one thing, there was no room in the inn, so uh, he had to be born in an obscure place, in that manger place, and the shepherds learned of his first coming only because the angels told him. So it's somewhat obscure the wise men, wise men know about his first coming, his birth, because they're attending and looking at the stars and they see a star that appears and they ask uh, Herod, what, what meaneth this and what is all this talking about? And they follow that star to where Jesus is at. And throughout the gospel accounts, again and again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, you see many times, is keeping his true identity of who he is a little bit hush-hush. He just doesn't come down and start telling everybody, hey, I'm God manifested in the flesh. He keeps a lot of that hush-hush. Even just the simple idea of him being the son of God is somewhat hush-hush. Only here and there do you see glimpses that he shares even sometimes with his disciples the reality of who he is. But that is his first coming, keeping things a little concealed, a little obscure. But in his second time, his second coming, Every eye shall see him. He will be unveiled. He will be revealed insomuch that I believe in the writings of Philippians, the scripture says that in that day every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess the things of the earth below the earth and in the heavens that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is, in fact, his second coming where every eye shall see him and know him for who and what he is. In the first coming, they said, is this man your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. When he comes the second time, they're going to know who the king is without any shadow of a doubt. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we understand from the first verse that this revelation was given according to the scripture to John. And John there is recording the things that he saw. And the things that he saw that would benefit the servants, the Bible say, of the Lord. Those are the servants of the Lord that were present in his day and that are still present in our day. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation, just wasn't pertinent to them. But as you know, it is also pertinent to you and 
eye. And this Bible particularly says the revelation was in particular for the seven churches there that are in that uh, area of Asia, what's known as Asia Minor, that uh, the Spirit of the Lord would address each of them individually a little bit later. But the whole book of Revelation, not just chapters 2 and 3, also pertain to all seven of those churches that John wrote to. The entire book of the book of Revelation was for them. And speaking of John, the one who uh, penned this and wrote this, God authored it, amen, but John is writing this as he's inspired. This is John that we know as John the Beloved. This is the John that is the brother of James, that is uh, the son of what's known as Zebedee in the Scriptures. This is the John that we're speaking about. This is not the only book that John has written. You know John to have written also St. John or the Gospel of John. John also penned first, second, third John that we have in our Bibles as well. And he's described here in verse 2, he's described as one that bore record. John bore record of the Word of God. Look at it in your own Bibles. You might want to keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter number 1. But in verse number 2, this is the John that bore record of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and all the things that he saw. Now, in all the books that are accounted for, the Gospel of John, 1st through 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, John bore records of things that he saw in every book. That's undoubtful, that he, of things that he saw in every book. But particularly in the book of Revelation, because Jesus very particularly told John, he says, you write the things that you see. In verse number 11, he says, what you see, write in a book. And we can see throughout the book of Revelation, you will see the phrase and the words time and time again. John says, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. And everything he saw, he wrote down and he relayed to you and I. And in verse 9, lets us know that John's record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is in part what got him in trouble and isolated to the isle called Patmos. He tells us in verse number 9 that he was there at the Isle of Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now you look at this two ways. It's either that the gospel that he had written and the one through three Johns that he had written had got him in trouble on the island or that he was on the island to receive the book of Revelation that concerned the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That little isle called Patmos. Patmos was just an island out into the sea about 50 miles uh, away from what is known today as modern-day Turkey, just a small little place that was out there outside of Asia Minor. And so here's John. At this particular time in John's life, he is the last living apostle. He's the last living disciple. He's been banished. He's been isolated, quarantined to this little island called Patmos, very small, barren island. Not vegetation there, it's a real rocky place. Uh, minimum vegetation, a lot of times the, the Roman government would send prisoners and people to Patmos and sometimes have them work in the rock quarries that were there. But it was just a picture of ruggedness, a picture of desolation. And so John was there, shut out from the rest of the world, as it were, that he knew. But although he was shut out from the rest of the world, he must have had some type of communion with God because there was birthed the revelation, the book of Revelation that you and I hold. So it isn't too much of a bad thing what happened to John because when he got away from the world and he got in with God, it brought revelation that you and I are still reading and rereading and still trying to grapple with. So... Uh, I think there's a, a lesson to be learned in that. Don't worry about when you're shut away from everybody else or the world. If you get alone with God, God's going to birth something in your spirit. Amen. That's vitally important if you allow him to. Who wants to be blessed tonight? Man, we got a bunch of people that want to be blessed. That's awesome. Well, for the next several weeks, if you come on Wednesday nights, you're going to be blessed. I guarantee you, you're going to be blessed because you don't want to miss it because I guarantee you're going to be blessed because the scripture guarantees it. In Revelation 1 verse 3, it is one of the few books in the entire Bible that guarantees a blessing within its own writing. The Bible says, Blessed is he that readeth and he that heareth the words of this prophecy. What's speaking of? The book of Revelation. And keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. So, everybody that never wants to use and read the book of Revelation in your Bible reading, shame on you. You're cheating yourself out of a blessing. 
Blessed is he that readeth. Now that is not a one time readeth. Notice the E-T-H on the end of the word. Anytime you see that in the scripture, that means read and continue reading. Uh-huh. Amen. Every time you read the book of Revelation, you might not see it materialize or know where to drive the line, but your life is being blessed by reading that and hearing the words of this prophecy. You coming on Wednesday night Bible study, hearing me up here, going on for an hour's time, talking about the book of Revelation, you're going to be blessed by that. And those that keep those things that are written therein. Now, now, now here it is. Now, Brother McGee, I do not understand everything. The scripture did not say, blessed is he that understandeth the book of Revelation. But he that reads and continues to read, he that sits in a setting like this and hears the words of it, and that keeps those. What are you talking about keep those? Well, one way in which we can keep these is by passing them on to the generations that follow us. Amen. By keeping them. So it's not about understanding. It, it, understanding will come. If you read and reread and listen, <laughs> understanding will come. And so there, and another blessing, I might say, uh, if I were to pinpoint a blessing, another blessing that might come from the book of Revelation is because a lot of the book of Revelation is based in many areas and directions off the Old Testament from Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. There's all these Old Testament. And so for a real proper study of the book of Revelation, you got to study the Old Testament scriptures, which what does that mean for you as a blessing? A more comprehensive knowledge of the Bible in general. <laughs> so you can't get into Revelation until you dabble into some other things. God, you, you just got blessed. Amen by that. Somebody's not feeling blessed. Amen. Hallelujah. So it begins with a blessing. This is, a, this is a, a book of the Bible that begins with a blessing, but it ends with a curse. Revelation twenty two eighteen. we read this oft times or have used it. It says, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plague that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, oft times, verses 18 19, we have used Brother Mason for the entirety of Scripture. And I believe that is proper. I believe that that is applicable. But more importantly, it is for the book of Revelation. Amen. It is for the book of Revelation. So watch out for every quack that's trying to add to this book. Because there are a lot of people that's trying to interpolate, amen, things that are just not even there. So be careful not to add to this book nor take away from the words of, notice, notice the wording of Scripture. It says the words of the prophecy of this book, the words of the book of this prophecy. So it is largely pertaining to the book in which those words are written, the book of Revelation, although I believe it is acceptable for the whole Scriptures of the Word of God, but mainly for the book of Revelation. Now, if we can just hit against maybe a, a misconception, Revelation is not entirely prophetic. Now, it's classified when we break down the books of the Bible and all the different categories, it's classified under prophecy. But it is not entirely prophetic. In some respects, Revelation is a little bit similar to the epistles in the fact that it was written to the seven churches of Asia. Because when you read the epistles that the apostle Paul wrote, the epistles are those that were written to churches like Corinth and Rome and Thessalonica and Colossae, all these different ones written to churches. Not only that, we see in verse number four some of the same terminology and language that's used whenever there is an address to a church in an epistle. There are many times they would say, peace be unto you and grace, those type of wordings, grace and peace be unto you. You see that in verse number four of the book of Revelation, which goes and shows that it has a little bit of a coloring of an epistle in that it was written to the churches, those seven churches, and that the language that it starts out with in its address is very similar to the other epistles that even Paul had wrote. Amen. And so we come then to what, uh, and again, this is me jumping around now. We come, there's a verse in scripture, verse number 19 of chapter number one, that has been considered the key to the book of Revelation. And it lets us know that parts of it are not prophetic. Revelation 1.19, the Bible states these words. Really what, what, what the Lord has provided for us is that he divided the book of Revelation up for us. Uh, nobody had to sit down and try to make an outline. He made the outline, 
Okay, you're not going to get a better outline unless the Lord makes it. Let me tell you right now. He made the outline. And so he says, this is, he's telling John, write the things which thou hast seen. All right, that's the past. And the things which are, that's the present. And the things which shall be hereafter, that's the future. And so he has, the book of Revelation is broken into these parts. Things of the past, things of the present, and things that are in the future, hereafter. And mainly, things of the past are chapter number one. He don't spend much time uh, uh, on the past, nor does he spend much time on the present. Because chapters two and three, where he gives the letters to the seven churches, would be considered the present. Now, the things that, so there are things that are not prophetic there, okay? But the things that are hereafter are the things that start, namely, in chapter number four. And case in point would just be to read. Revelation 4 and 1 the Bible says after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said come up hither and I will shew thee things which must be hereafter and so there's a good indication the Lord says this is what it's going to be you're going to write of that which thou hast seen which are and of that which shall be hereafter and he denotes very clearly where the hereafter starts revelations 4 and 1 he says i will shew thee things which must be hereafter and so tonight there is a large portion of the book of revelation that is still yet to be unfolded still yet to take place Uh, Revelation 4 through 18, there's a lot of future events. And through the end of of the book, a lot of future events. Revelation 19 concerns a lot of the second coming. Revelation chapter number 20 concerns a lot the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. And Revelation 21 and 22 concern that new heaven and that new earth and all of the descriptive words to describe that grand place that is to take place. Amen. Hallelujah. Consider, if you will, verse number 5. And some of these will not be on the screen, so you need your Bible. Consider the descriptions here that are given to Jesus Christ, starting in verse number 5. He is called the faithful witness. He is called the first begotten of the dead. He is called the prince of the kings of the earth. If I will concentrate on that second one, he is the first begotten of the dead. Now, Jesus Christ was not the first to be raised from the dead. All right, There were others that were raised from the dead prior to Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. There was the widow's son in the Old Testament that was raised from the dead. There was the man who was cast into the tomb of Elisha and touched his bones that was raised from the dead. There was Jairus' daughter in New Testament scripture prior to the Lord rising from the dead. All right, or resurrected, might I say. She rose from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. He came from the dead. And so when it says the first begotten of the dead, first doesn't necessarily always convey position, but it also conveys preeminence, most importance, if you will. He may have not been, listen to this very clearly, he may not have been the first one that was raised from the dead, but he was the first one, and I like to use this word, that was resurrected from the dead. Because resurrection means you obtain a glorified body and never have to die again. Uh Uh-huh. Lazarus was going to die again. These other people that were raised from the dead, they were going to die again. But whenever Christ got up from the grave and was resurrected, he got a different body. Amen. And he was not going to ever die again. Amen. And so we see then in these, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. Charles Larkin notes this. He says, it is also worthy of note that the three office of Jesus in these three descriptions what's described here is Jesus as prophet priest and king it's brought out here in these three he is called the faithful witness in that he was a prophet he was the first begotten from the dead in that he carried his own blood the scripture says into that heavenly tabernacle amen and performed the work of a priest Amen. He goes in there and he'll take the throne someday as the king. So as prophet, Jesus is God's word. As the priest, he is God's lamb. But as the king, he will be God's lion. Amen. He is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, along with these offices, let's look what Jesus Christ has done for us. Everybody say us. 
what he's done for us. In the closure of this verse, and in the beginning of verse number 6, the Bible says unto him, Jesus Christ, that he loved us. He loved us. And that's, you know, we look at that as a past tense word, but in the Greek, it's the present tense. It means he is loving us. I like that. Because we look sometimes at Calvary, oh, he loved us. No, he's loving you. He didn't just love you. He is loving you. He loved us and he washed us, the Bible says. And I like it. From our sins, not in a sacrifice's blood, not in somebody else's blood, but in his own blood. And it's always taken blood. Adam and Eve couldn't be covered in the Garden of Eden if it wasn't for a blood sacrifice. Amen. And the problem that we maybe stumble on today is the problem of Cain wanting to offer something to God that doesn't require blood. That of the ground rather than that of the field. But it always is going to require blood. And he made us, look what the scripture says, he made us kings and priests, or also interpreted, he made us a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. So we're priests. But we need to know what is the concern of the priest. And I want to say that the main concern of the priest is not ministering to man. The main concern of the priest is ministering to God. Amen. That's the office of the priest, ministering to God. Because whenever you minister to God, God through you will be able to minister unto God. Man, Amen. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a what? A holy priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to who? To God by Jesus Christ. Now look at verse number 6. And I, I know I'm rolling it wrong, but we must roll. All right. Verse number 6, the Bible says, Speaking of this Christ, and we'll see that. Look at the last phrase of verse number six. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him. Who is him? Well, if you follow from verse number five and from Jesus Christ, who, it's speaking about Jesus Christ, the first begotten, talking about Jesus Christ, the prince of the kings of the earth, talking about Jesus Christ. Unto him, it's speaking about Jesus Christ that loved us, washed us from our sins and hath made us, who has Jesus Christ, all right, to him, it's still speaking about Jesus Christ. So to him or to Jesus Christ be glory and dominion forever and ever. Yet, now we're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet elsewhere, it said though in scripture, that God in Isaiah 48 and 11, it clearly says, God, everybody say God, will not give his glory to another. But we see in Revelation here of Jesus Christ, talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if you will, the Bible clearly says to him, Jesus Christ, be glory. Yet Isaiah said, God will not give his glory to another. What is the quandary here? There is none when you understand that Jesus is God. To Jesus Christ, be glory. God said he wouldn't give his glory to another. No problem. Jesus is God. Someone say amen. amen. Revelation 1 and 8. We're talking about the revelation, the unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. Revelation 1 8, he speaks and says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, the one, I'm just going to be real vague at first, but the one that is speaking here in Revelation 1.8 is saying, I'm Alpha Omega, the beginning and the ending. It's important to note that he did not say the end because an end is something that's definite. An ending is something that's constantly in process but never happens until the end. So he's not a definite end point. He is ending. It's always in process but never going to get there because you can't find the beginning of him nor the ending or the end of him. He is eternal. Amen. He fills all 
and all. He says, which is, the one speaking says, I am that which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, we have another dilemma. We're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have a dilemma. Because if somebody says, I'm Almighty, then there's nobody else that can be that. Almighty is Almighty. There's not, <laughs> you can be less than the Almighty, but you can't be the Almighty. There can only be one Almighty. And in the Old Testament scripture, God had already affirmed that he was the Almighty to Abraham many years ago. In Genesis 17 and 1, he spoke to Abraham. And when Abraham was 90 years old and 9, 99, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, This is the Lord, this is God, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Well, if God said he was the Almighty in the Old Testament, and Almighty means Almighty, there cannot be two Almighties, only one Almighty. How in the world is this person in the book of Revelation speaking about being the Almighty as well? So one might start to deduce, well, this person must be God because there can only be one Almighty. Right? Amen. And so whenever we look at this, he continues to talk. This one that is speaking continues to talk in verse number 11 and says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Just reaffirm that. I am the first and the last. So he puts a little disclaimer in on there. He continues to talk in verse number 17. Now look now. Verse number 17 comes after John has saw this person that he said was like unto the Son of Man. Amen. Like unto the Son of Man. Capital S-O-N. Son of Man. He's referring to Jesus Christ. This person that's in the midst of the candlesticks and has a, a robe that goes down to uh, his feet. And his feet look like burnished brass. All this. this is, he says it's like unto the Son of Man. Walking in the midst of the candlesticks. Now, I ask you a question tonight. Have you ever seen someone approaching you and you looked at them and you thought you know them? You may have even said, you know what? If it isn't Bruce, it's someone that looks like Bruce. Huh? If that isn't so-and-so, then it's somebody that looks like so-and-so because you're pretty confident it is them, but if it's not, then it's somebody that looks pretty close to them. Well, John, whenever he first turns and sees this one that is speaking amidst the candlesticks, he says, it's someone that's like unto the Son of Man. This is somebody that's awful close to be like Jesus. And if anybody knew what Jesus looked like, John did. John, the beloved, that's all the time sitting near Jesus on Jesus' bosom. If anybody got a good look at the face of what Jesus Christ looked like, John knew what Jesus looked like. He says, whenever I see him at this distance, he says, it's like unto the Son of Man. But the closer that he gets, it seals the deal. Just like you and I, as we get closer to someone, it seals the deal. Because the Bible says, amen, in the other verse, that John saw him. In verse 17, John saw him. I turned and looked, but it's now as though there's been a journey. He's gotten a little closer. John saw him, and his reaction is he fell at his feet. This person, now look, this person is still talking, the one that we followed all along. Here's a person that's talking, Alpha Omega, beginning and ending. Amen, first and last, which was, uh, which is, which was, and which is to come. We're calling it God because he said he was the Almighty, and there can only be one Almighty. Amen, but he's still talking here. John says he looks like the Son of Man. He looks like Jesus. He gets close. He says, I saw him and I fell on my feet. That's exactly who this was. And this person says that I am the first and the last. He reiterates that. Amen. So that's amen. Amen. So he sees someone that he thought to be the son of God. He gets closer. He's certain that it is. He sees him. It removes all doubt. And then there is the descriptive verse 18 that removes utter doubt. Because the same person that's been talking all along comes to this place and says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Honey, if there is ever a description that surely fits Jesus Christ, who lives, that was dead, but alive forevermore, then that describes Jesus Christ. But... If this person talking all along then comes, he's the one that lives and was dead and is alive forevermore, that's Jesus Christ, then that means Jesus Christ is the one that stated, I'm the Almighty. Again, folks, 
There's only one Almighty. It can only take place like that. If someone says, I'm Almighty, they're Almighty. It's said and done. God said He was Almighty in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I'm the Almighty in the New Testament. We have no great contradiction or controversy here because Jesus is God. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Someone say amen. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's only one Almighty. There's only one first and last. There's only one beginning and ending. Amen. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh as who? Jesus Christ, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. We're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, where the scripture said, to wit, God was in Christ. God was in Christ. God could be the Almighty. Jesus could be the Almighty because God was in Christ. The Bible says whenever the Jesus was on the earth and he was speaking to the Philip and Philip says, Christ, you show us the Father and it was sufficeth. He said, have I been this so long time with you, Philip, that you don't know the Father? And Jesus said to him, he that has seen me, Jesus has seen the Father. You looking for the Almighty? Here's the Almighty right here. You're looking for the Great One, the First, the Last, the Alpha and Omega? You're looking at Him right here and right now. Someone say Amen. Amen. So Jesus must be the fleshly manifestation of God. Or someone is making a false claim because two people can't be the Almighty. Uh Uh-huh. Amen. There can only be one. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 7. Moving onward. The Bible says, And behold, he cometh. And that is a great thing for the book of Revelation. He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. He cometh. Again, the great little ETH ending. He comes and is coming. Amen. He is coming. Tony Garland said this. He said, he is coming. Present tense. He says, every eye will see him. He said, it's future tense. He says, so the grammar places the event on the edge between the present and the future. A futuristic present. In other words, he says, it's about to occur. It's imminent, or if you will, at hand. So I say, well, they said, he said, behold, I come quickly, or I come shortly, or I'm coming. That's great. That is absolutely right. That is true. You know what that means? He is imminent. He is at hand. You called something handy, it's because it's at hand. It's because it's within reach. It's because if you need it, you can grab it, you can pick it up. The coming of Christ is handy. It's at hand. Amen. Verse number 9. John, in speaking to the churches and the people that he was going to be addressing, he was letting them know that he was their brother, their companion in tribulation. Now, it's not to be confused. Whenever he says a companion in tribulation, he is not talking about a companion in the great tribulation. All right? John is talking right now. We're not talking about things hereafter. We're talking about the past right now. The little divisions the Lord made up for us, we're talking about the past. Right now, at this period of time in the church, there was great persecution. And so John's letting them know, hey, I've not escaped that persecution either. I felt the heat and everything of what's going on in our time. So that's not to be confused with the great tribulation. So look now at verse number 12. The Bible says, because John has this voice speaking to him, and evidently John's back is turned to whoever, Jesus Christ it was, that was speaking to him. His back is turned to him. But in verse number 12, the scripture tells us that John turned in verse 12 to see the voice that spake with him. And no doubt that he recognized to be Christ. All right? And again, if anybody knew what Jesus looked like, John did. If anybody, Brother Zach, knew what Jesus sounded like, his ear not being far from the Lord's lips off times, he's going to know and recognize that voice. And so, you got to understand, John's hearing this, his back's to it. He's, he's feeling already, that sounds like the Lord. That sounds like, I've heard this before. 
I've said it too many dinners and tables. I'm close to it. That sounds like the Lord. And the Bible says whenever he turned around to look, look now, instead of first seeing Christ, he sees the seven golden candlesticks, which the Scripture tells us are the seven churches. I like this. John says, I hear the voice of the Lord. I hear the voice of Christ. He's turning around expecting to see Christ, but when he turns around, he sees the seven candlesticks or the seven churches. If Christ's voice is ever to be found anywhere in the last days, it needs to be found in the churches. If Christ's voice ever needs to be heralded or spoken or people ever need to recognize his voice anywhere, it better be found at 1121 Cedar Street at the First Apostolic Church. I turned expecting to see Christ and I seen the church and heard him speaking from the church. Amen. Hallelujah. And so Jesus interprets for us because there is, some, there is some symbolism here of seven stars and seven golden candlesticks, but Jesus interprets for us in the last verse of this chapter what those are. In verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Remember, when each letter was written to the church, it was said unto the angel of the church of Sardis, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, unto the angel, you get in the point, of the angel of Pergamos. It was written to the angel of the church. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Amen. Everybody say Amen. To understand that it's quickly or that it's nigh or that this coming is at hand. Many times whenever you see symbolism, you're talking about candlesticks, lampstands, and stars. You do that in a darkened moment when the hour has grown late. He says the stars that you see and, and the candlesticks that you see. Why? Because we're living in the late hour. We're living in the nine hour. Not only that, those seven stars that are in your right hand. Everybody say right hand. Everybody say power. Amen. In the Old Testament days, and not so much so today, but people used to use the stars to give them direction. They traveled on land or sea and would travel by the stars. Stars helped lead them to their destination. He says these seven angels are in his hand. And there was an angel for each church that followed in chapters 2 and chapter 3. Now, when we look at the term or the word angel, the word angel simply means messenger. Some have said messenger of the churches. Some, and I'm not endorsing nor refuting, amen, said that it could even mean that it was the messenger of the church or what would be known as our modern day pastor of the church but then there's others that we could look at and say well the angels are in his hand that God has dispatched an angel for your church God has an angel for your church nevertheless they're in his hand and he says the seven candlesticks which were seen a candlestick and it can also be interpreted as a lampstand candlestick lampstand something we got to understand here when we talk about candlesticks and lampstand a candlestick is something that you set a candle on all right, a lampstand is something you set. A, this is deep now, I know, but it's something that you set a lamp on. So a candlestick supports the light, and a lampstand supports the light. The churches are not similar to the candles or the lamps. They're similar to the candlesticks, the supporters, and the lampstands, the supporters. The churches was to support, hold, bear the light. Churches are not the source of the light, but we're supposed to be supporting. Someone say amen. Supporting the light. I didn't put these scriptures up here. I didn't know how much time I had. And I got time. You got time. We all got time. Hallelujah. It's the summer. Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 14. The Bible states these words here this evening. Matthew 5 verse 14. Here it comes emphatically. He says these words. You know what? 
don't inverse that. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Look though, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but what? On a candlestick. And it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify what? Your Father, which is in heaven. He says, ye are the light of the world. Now, I don't want us to get too pious because we are not, in essence, the source of the light. But we are supporters of the light. He said, you don't take a candle and put it under a bushel. You put it on a candlestick. If you will, for the Revelation story, you put it on a church. Let a church bear it up. Let a church hoard it. Let a church support it. And when everybody sees the light, they're not going to glorify you, but they're going to glorify their Father because they know the Father is the real source of the light. You're just a bearer and a supporter of the light. And so I'm telling us in this last hour and last day, let's be bearers of the light. Let's be bearers of the light. Let's be supporters of the light. The Bible said that John the Baptist came. This is John, the revelator that wrote the book of Revelation. He spoke in the book of the Gospel of John concerning John the Baptist he said there was a man sent from heaven whose name was John amen but he was not the light but he came to bear witness of the light of the true light that's the light of Jesus Christ what are you talking about John the Baptist wasn't the light but he was a supporter he was an up upholder he was if you will one that held the light amen and that is the true light of Jesus Christ so I'm telling you tonight amen if nothing more just bear witness of the light be a candlestick speak be the church bear witness of the true light the light of Christ Jesus someone say amen I'm conscious of your time I'm bringing this plane in for landing I might circle the pad just one time now in verse number 13 So he sees this one, like we said. He says, like unto the Son of Man, which later we know with certainty is Jesus, in the midst of the churches. And that's vitally important, this revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus Christ. He looks, he sees the candlesticks, but in the midst of them, he says, it's one like unto the Son of Man, which he later knows with certainty is Jesus Christ. And so Christ is where he exactly belongs, and that's among the churches. In the midst of the churches, from the very beginning to the end that's where he belonged in the Old Testament through the plan and symbolism of the tabernacle with the holies of holies in the tabernacle around the tabernacle were the, the, the different divisions of the Levites the Kohathites the Jerushalemites, all of them were Levites right around the tabernacle and then around that on the east you had three tribes on the west three tribes on the north three tribes on the south three, three tribes what did that mean? the place where the cloud appeared between the two cherubim on the holies of holies was in the midst of all of the people. It was then, and so it should be in the final days. John says, I looked and I saw him in the midst of the churches, in the midst of the... And so if he's not in the middle of us, man, we're out of step with Scripture and alignment with Scripture because that's where he was to begin with and that's where he should be to end with. He should be right smack dab in the middle of church. Amen. I want somebody to say whenever they left the church, boy, I felt the presence. Why? Because he should be smack dab right in the middle of church. Honey, whenever I went over there, I felt the presence of God. I experienced something I never experienced before. Why is that so? Because he's just the same as he was in the Old Testament. He should be smack dab right there in the middle of the church. Now, it's like into the Son of Man. I am. I'm coming in. My engine's coming down. All right. But he's seen in this picture, we have a lot of descriptives that is given to this one that's likened to the Son of Man that we know later to be, without doubt, Jesus Christ. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and hair as white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire, feet into fine brass as burned in the first. His voice as the sound of many waters and didn't describe him what's in his right hand and what's coming out of his mouth as a two-edged sword. His countenance as the sun shining in his strength. And that's not the first time John had seen that because John was privy to be one of the three inner disciples Peter, James, and John that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and when he was transformed before them they spoke of how his face did shine as the light. So this is not the first time that John had witnessed this. 
Man, there's bells and whistles going off in his head. I've seen this before. I've seen this before. But here in the middle of all this, now look, he's in the middle of the candlesticks, among the candlesticks. That seems to bend or, or, or be bending toward his office as being the high priest. The high priest attending to the candlesticks in and among the candlesticks. He's high priest here. Even a garment down to the foot, that's very, very indicative of a high priest. And so it seems as though he's functioning this office of high priest among the candlesticks, uh, candlesticks attending to them. However, listen to me. John seeing all this seems almost like a priest here among the candlesticks. But something is just a little different. Something in all of this is indicating that there's a changing of the guard that is coming in the row of Christ Jesus. Because of the wording in verse 13 that says, as he's looking at this, this is one that is girt about the paps or chest, if you will, with a golden girdle. So he's among the candlesticks, seem to be doing the office of a priest, but that right there indicates that there's a changing of a guard that's happening for Jesus Christ because the golden girdle for the high priest was wore around his waist. And this girdle was around the chest. Those who wore girdles around their chests were those of the kingly persuasion. John sees Christ operating in this modus priest with one little difference. The girdle is around his chest, indicating what of a coming that is nigh, that he's going from the role of priesthood to kingship. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's something being relayed to John. Man, he's functioning right now, but there's something at hand. There's a transition at hand. There's a king that's about ready to return. There's a king on the verge of approaching this land. If you'll stand with me tonight, And see, so the first book of Revelation, the first chapter wasn't that hard on everybody. That's pretty easy. Chapters 2 and 3 won't be too much of a difficulty. Now we'll get into the long way from 4 to 22. Hallelujah. I ask you, read the book of Revelation. Read chapters 2 and 3 before you get back here next week. Oh, I don't want to do that. You're going to be blessed. I guarantee it. Man, if, I, if you've ever got a guarantee for me, you can take that one to the bank. You're going to be blessed if you read the book. And you're going to be blessed if you show up here next Wednesday as we continue in this. Folks, I don't know how long of a journey this is going to be. It'll be as long as it takes. All right? Amen. But we'll get through it. But when we're done, we're going to be blessed by it. And hopefully we'll have a better understanding. And all of your Daniel study is not going to be to not. It's going to crop up time and time again in the next several, several weeks. Amen. I want to pray here this evening in closure. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.